1.18, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, coming out of that, we see this beautiful transition, right? So rereading it at the end of 22, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. We're going to come back to this. This is one of those uh, gems that absolutely requires us to spend some time with it. But, but just for today, what I want to do is I want you to see the beauty of this transition. All are sinners. We've all committed cosmic treason. We're all guilty of rebelling against God, and we are all, as a result, under the umbrella of the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We all lack the glory necessary to be what we are created to be. But we've all also been offered the same incredible gift. A grace, justification by faith. Now, the word justification simply means to be declared righteous. Right? So what he's saying is, is even though all have sinned, that same all can be justified, declared righteous by God himself, by his grace, right? as an act of unmerited favor, as a gift right? for all those who have faith. It is so simple in the way he states it. In fact, it's understated. It, it, it is, it is, um, it, it's easy, in fact, I think, if we're just reading through this to kind of ignore it because it almost seems casual. The way he makes this transition from all our sinners to, to all can be justified by his grace as a gift, right? There's, there's, there's just this simple transition that, that takes place here. And, and the problem with that is, is, is it can lead us to believe that, it, that since it, it's stated so simply, almost casually, that, that the problem must not have been that bad to begin with, right? I mean, I mean if, 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 what's all the drama about? If, if God could just ignore our sin and declare us righteous, if, if God could just, by grace, say, here's the gift of justification, here's the gift of declaring you righteous as a gift, right? It's just a gift. I mean, what's... What's all the drama about, right? Well, here's the thing, y'all. The gift of grace is free. In fact, the gift of grace has to be free. We'll get into that a little bit later. If you try to earn it, you disqualify yourself from it. The gift of grace is free, but that doesn't mean it came without a cost. It's free to us. It was not free to God. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. Let me put the verses on the screen behind me because I want you to see the two words we're going to be focusing on this morning. Believers, or those who who respond to this invitation by faith, believers are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This morning, I want to focus on those two key words, redemption and propitiation, and um, there are two things that, that are weighty in this passage for me. This is going to be a little technical, okay? So stick with me because it's worth it. And second of all, there is a ridiculous weightiness to these words. Like all of Scripture is holy ground. But there are times when I'm opening up the Word 
that I'm just overwhelmed by the weightiness of it. And this is one of those times. So purely by the grace of God and hopefully through the work of the Spirit, we will get a glimpse at some of the beauty and depth in this passage. Let's talk about the two words, redemption. Redemption. Uh, redemption is, is a word that, that we use today, right? We don't use it a lot, but we, we use it, right? We generally use it in terms of redeeming a coupon or, or redeeming an offer, right? And, and what we mean by that is, is that we're, we're seeking to recover the value of something, right? So if we're going to use a coupon, we're redeeming the value that is inherent in that coupon. If, if we're redeeming an offer, we're, we're redeeming the, the value inherent in, in the offer. And, and that actually is very close to what the word means, in biblical Greek, okay? Uh, although it has more of a nuance. It had a very specific context that it was used in the New Testament. Specifically, it was used in the context of the slave market. Now, again, let me give you the context of the ancient slave market. Um, the ancient slave market is, is not like what happened over at the courthouse steps uh, in St. Louis. Um, again, there's, a, there's a, a difference between American uh, history of slavery and, and the ancient practice of slavery. If you fell into debt in the ancient world, um, you could fall into slavery. In other words, when you owed somebody a great amount of money, you might in fact be enslaved to them. What that meant was your productivity for a specific amount of time was theirs. And you would work. Your productivity would pay off your debt. And once your debt was paid off, you were free. And often, you, you had complete freedom outside of your productivity. In other words, you, you gave your productivity to, to the slave master, but your life was still yours. They didn't own you, right? Chattel slavery, like in American history, was, was, that wasn't, it was, it was, they owned your productivity, right? And, and, and your children weren't automatically enslaved. And now I'm not saying there weren't abuses and there weren't times in which there were, there were horrendous examples. There were. Um, but by and large in the slave market, it was a slavery of, of productivity and it was a slavery that was bound to a specific debt. And just like today, that debt could be sold. So you ever get notification that your credit card, your debt's been sold. If you buy a house and you get a mortgage and, you know, you're used to paying the local bank and all of a sudden you're paying somebody in, in who knows where because they sold your debt. And I always wondered, how in the world do you make money selling debt? But you do, right? You do. And, and in, in the slave market, they would actually sell this, this debt. And, uh, and so in the slave market, this debt indebtedness was brought to market. There were three words used in the New Testament that came from this context that we translate redeem. So every time you see it in English, you just read the word redeem, but it's actually three different Greek words. And so what I want to do is kind of highlight some of the nuances behind the scenes. They all mean essentially the same thing, but they have a different emphasis. And the first one is this, agorazo. Agorazo. Don't worry about trying to learn the Greek word. I'm just highlighting it so you know the difference between the others. Agorazo is a word that meant to buy in the slave market. That's what it meant to buy in the slave market. This word is used in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is, is encouraging the Corinthian believers to be sexually pure. He's arguing against sexual immorality, and he is saying, as a follower of Christ, you have an obligation to sexual purity, and you need to be pursuing sexual purity, right? And at the end of that passage, he says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought, agorazo, with a price. You were redeemed with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, this word means to be bought in the slave market, and the emphasis 
is that you were bought in the slave market and your debt has been transferred. You're now a bondservant of Christ. You were redeemed, but you now have a new allegiance, right? You were redeemed, but, but you were bought. It's a reminder that you were a slave to your sin and now you have a, an obligation, a loyalty, a new identity that is marked by holiness, right? So the emphasis of agarazzo is, is being bought in a slave market. The next word is ex agarazzo. Um, the prefix ex means out, okay? So, so this word is also translated redeem, but it means to buy out of the slave market. And this word is used in, in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, in Galatians 3, he's making a technical argument about Jews who were under the Mosaic Covenant. Now, remember, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Jewish people had a a, a covenant relationship with, with God through the Mosaic Covenant. And in that covenant, they basically said, we'll obey the law in order to receive a blessing. And if we disobey the law... We'll get a curse. And every single Jewish person that was ever born earned the curse because nobody kept it. Until Jesus came, he was the only Jewish person ever born who completely fulfilled the Mosaic law and earned its blessing. And then he died under its curse as a, as a substitute to free the Jewish people from their indebtedness to the Mosaic law. In other words, he redeemed them from, from out from under the weight of the law. Even though they had voluntarily entered into this covenant relationship with God and said, we, we will perform, we will do this thing, he is now redeeming them out from under the weight of having to perform to be accepted, to work to be approved, right? So he is redeeming them out, ex agarazzo. The third one, the one that's used in our passage, is apolutruo. And apolutruo means to be set free through the payment of a price. Now, again, it's in the same context. Slave market of sin, right? The, this, this idea that, that we're being bought out. We were bought, we were bought out, and now the focus, the emphasis is on, on the fact that we were bought with a price, okay? Um, because lutro'o, the root of that word is lutron, which is the Greek word for ransom. You were bought with a ransom price. You were bought with a sin debt payment, right? And that's the word we have in our passage. Believers are justified by his grace as a gift through the apolutruo, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through the ransom price that was paid. Believer, you are declared right by grace as a gift. But that gift, while it is free for you, is not free for God. There was a ransom price that had to be paid for you to be set free, for you to be redeemed. That gift came through the ransom price that Jesus paid to buy us out of the slavery of our own hearts to our own sin, our slavery to our sin debt. And the price that he paid is greater than any we can imagine. I want to take a look at our second word to kind of explore the price that was paid, right? The second word is propitiation. Propitiation, unlike redeem, we don't really use that word a whole lot. I'm guessing most of you have never used it in casual conversation. 
If you have, you're probably a theology student or you're weird, okay? Um, because it's, it's just not a word that we use broadly in, in, uh, in conversation, right? Whom, this, that Jesus, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's, that, that not only is it an unfamiliar word, it's an awkward sentence. It's just weird. What does that mean that God put him forward as a propitiation? How are we even supposed to understand this? Um, So let's talk about the word propitiation, and then we'll talk about why it's structured this way. Propitiation, while it's a word that you haven't used much, it is something you've probably done much. You have propitiated. You have. Let me explain what that means. The word propitiation means satisfaction for a grievance. Have you ever said something stupid? The answer is yes. Okay. Uh, have you ever said something stupid to somebody you cared about? Yes. Still yes. Uh, you ever done something you regretted doing? You know, you woke up and you were just grumpy and at the moment you thought you were completely and fully satisfied in being a grouch and a grump and demanding. And like when you had a little bit of coffee and you actually became human, you were like, holy cow, I was so rude, right? And so um, often what you will do in that moment is try to return with a propitiation, a gift, a gift that does two things. One, it alleviates the injury that's been incurred. In other words, it kind of pays the price of, of having done wrong, and it wins back the affection or the favor of the one that you've alienated, and a, and a propitiation price. So if you've ever showed back up at the house with, with roses, right? Knock, knock, knock. That doesn't work, by the way. Um, it's a little bit of life experience. Um, uh, if you've ever like, okay, I'm going to do the dishes tonight, right? Twice. Um, if you've ever, you know, like, like just in the middle of the day, like, you don't do this normally, but all of a sudden you just start texting all these encouraging little notes, right? It's, they're just little ways you're basically saying, I'm sorry. I'm putting in effort to, to help pay for what I've done. And, and, and I hope this gift helps reduce your anger and, and, and renew your affection for me. If you've done that, you've propitiated. You have participated in propitiation. You have sought to propitiate your friend or your spouse or your boss or, or whoever it was that you were giving this gift of satisfaction to that you hoped would help pay for your wrong and win back the affection that you had felt you, you had lost. Now, this is exactly how the word was used in classical Greek. So when you look at the word propitiation, which is the Greek word halisterion, in classical Greek, classical Greek, broader Greek usage outside of the Bible, that's how it was used. It was used in, in terms of pagan sacrifices. So if you went into temples and, and you felt like, like you had lost the favor of your God, you'd done something wrong um, and, 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 and now you felt like you lost the God's favor and, and, and you wanted that God to like you again, you wanted to have the favor of that God, you would bring a propitiatory sacrifice. You'd bring a propitiatory gift. And, and the purpose behind that gift was to calm that God's anger and win back the favor that you felt like you had lost. That they would go, oh, okay, all right, thanks for the gift, I like you better now, okay? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my, my favor. It was, a, it was a gift to regain the goodwill of a deity. If you were in a bad way, a helisterion could, could help you get back into a good way with the God. Does that make you a little nervous? 
You're not liking that? I don't like it. You know why? Because that definition of propitiation, which is, by the way, the broader classical definition of the word, really doesn't jive with my understanding of a biblical God. God's not waiting for us to do something to earn back his favor. God is not a capricious God who gets angry and hopes for a good gift to calm his anger. God isn't a moody and angry deity that requires you to earn your way out of trouble. And yet that's how often when people study this word, they walk away and and there are people that have a real struggle with this word for that very reason. And I think it's a legitimate struggle, right? And, And it gets even worse if you start picturing God as this vainglorious father, who had his honor um, challenged, and, and, and he needs to be vindicated. He needs his honor restored. And so he is going to demand a price. You better pay that price to show that once again you're willing to give him the honor he deserves because, because he, he's wounded by the lack of honor and the, and the lack of... And so he needs to feel vindicated. If that's your picture of, of um, propitiation, I fully understand if you don't like it and if you feel like, in fact, it actually is counter to a biblical understanding of, of how God works. I would, in fact, agree with you because I don't think that's the proper understanding. As a result, many today would actually argue that halisterion, the Greek word, shouldn't be translated propitiation. It should be translated expiation. And you're like, Steve, that's great. I also have never heard of that word. Um, expiation. Propitiation means a gift of satisfaction. Expiation means the removal of guilt. Okay? So what they would say is that halisterion shouldn't be translated propitiation, that God needs to be satisfied. It should be translated expiation. We need our guilt removed. Right? That what Jesus did is he died um, not to satisfy God, but to remove our guilt and to cleanse our conscience. At the risk of oversimplifying, to help you understand the distinction, let me put it this way. They would say that that, that the real question is, did Jesus die to change God's attitude toward us or to change our attitude toward God? Is the real heart of the problem that God needs an attitude adjustment toward us or that we need an attitude adjustment toward God. And they would argue that because God never changes in His nature, in His character, that nothing needs to change in God. And as a result, we're the ones who need to change. We needed this demonstration of love to cleanse our conscience and to awaken within us a responding love to God expiation. That by seeing this incredible demonstration of love, it would cleanse our conscience and reawaken within us a responding love to God. So let me just say two things. The first, I absolutely agree that the death of Christ has expiatory power, that it does produce expiation and it's biblical and it's beautiful. The demonstration of God's love cleanses my conscience. 
The demonstration of love makes it safe for me to stop pretending and performing and actually show up as I actually am. Knowing that that God loves me and that he wants me to respond in love to him. It does have expiatory power, expiation, right, on, on my soul. It removes my guilt and it awakens a responding love to God. But I would also absolutely assert that his death was also a propitiation. That it wasn't purely and only expiation, but it was, in fact, propitiation. That it was a ransom paid to satisfy God's wrath in regard to my sin. Romans 1.18 makes it very, very clear that God is not neutral in regard to my sin. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God is not passive or indifferent to our sin. He is in a posture of wrath toward our cosmic treason. The greatest barrier to our salvation is not our guilty conscience. It is our guilt before a holy and just God. The central tension of this paragraph, when you read this entire paragraph, Paul's not trying to convince us how much God loves us. That's not the central tension of this paragraph. The central tension of this paragraph is how can a just God justify sinners and remain righteous? That's the central tension. When you read through this paragraph, the word righteousness jumps out at you. If you were to highlight it, it is all over this paragraph because that's the central tension. How can a just God declare unjust people righteous and remain himself just? How can a holy God cover unholy people? with a righteousness that is not theirs and remain himself holy. That requires that our sin price be paid. That requires that justice for our cosmic treason be enacted. So let me make it clear. That does not mean that I think we should understand the word, halisterion, propitiation, like the ancient pagans did. I think they misunderstood it, right? And I think people that today would approach it that way also misunderstand it. God is not a capricious or vain father that needs sacrifice to appease him and win back his affection. It isn't God's vanity that needs to be uh, calmed or, 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 or appeased. It is his justice that must be satisfied. My understanding, and and I think this understanding of the word propitiation, halisterion, isn't rooted in the ancient Greek culture. I think that was actually a, uh, a, a twisting of the word, a misunderstanding of the word. This understanding of the word actually comes from the Old Testament. Um, because this word is used in the Old Testament. And you're like, wait a minute, Steve, how's that possible? The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and halisterion is Greek. Very astute of you. That is very true. Um, But during the time of Christ, most people didn't read the Hebrew Old Testament. They read a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Very much like, you know, we're not reading Greek this morning. We're reading English, right? This is a translation. 
During Christ's time, most people, Jesus included, read this translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the word halasterion, propitiation, is used in a very, very critical passage in Leviticus to actually describe the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, let me give you a little bit of context for why that's important. The Ark of the Covenant was a critically important piece of Jewish worship. It was a, it was a, a, a box made of shittim wood. Uh, that's not a bad word. And uh, it is covered in, in pure gold, okay? And, and on the lid are, are two cherubim with their wings covering. And inside the box are key things. One, the broken law from Moses. So Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, found the people sinning, threw them on the ground, and broke them, representing the Mosaic Covenant, God's expectation of humanity, man's inability to obey it, the broken law. Aaron's rod that budded and, and, and a gold jar of manna. Both of those have significance. Not talking about it today. They're inside this box, okay? On the surface of this box, this is a seat, a flat space covered by these cherubim that represented the presence of God. In fact, there's one passage where God himself spoke to Moses from the space between the cherubim. It represented the holy presence of God. It was covered with the cherubim because they're the guardians of the glory of God. Now, this box, this Ark of the Covenant, was kept in the temple, and it was critical to Jewish worship. Now, let me, let me explain to you how you would approach it. Outside of the temple were, were these courtyards. So the most outermost courtyard was the courtyard of the Gentiles. So if you were non-Jewish and became a proselyte, a follower of Judaism, you could come into that, that courtyard to, to worship. If you were a Jewish woman, you could come into the next courtyard, the courtyard of the women. If you were a, a Jewish man, you could come into the courtyard of the Jews. If you were a Levite which is a specific tribe of Judaism, you could come into the central court and actually offer sacrifices. You could actually, in fact, come into the outer room of the temple called the holy place. And you could take care of the table of showbread and take care of the incense and the different things of worship that were going on in that space. But there was one more room. And only one person could go into that room. That was the high priest. And he could only go in once a year. And inside that room was the Ark of the Covenant. And once a year, he would go in First with the blood of a, 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 a bull, a calf, and, th- and that blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the halisterion seat, the propitiation seat. It would be sprinkled on that seat and on the ground in front of it. And that blood was for himself, his own sins, and the sins of his family. And then he would leave and he would come back in with the blood of a goat. And that blood was to cover the sins of all of Israel for that year. And he could only do it once a year. In fact, it was so holy and so sacred that in later traditions, the high priest would actually wear bells around the bottom of his garment because if those bells stopped ringing, it meant he stopped moving. And if he stopped moving, it meant he was struck dead. And they had a rope tied around his ankle so they could pull him out because nobody else could go in there. That's how holy. That's how holy and terrifying that space was. Now, I want you to picture what's going on here. By establishing a temple... And saying that his glory resides in the temple and in fact resides on the seat of the Ark of the Covenant. What God was saying is, I want to be known and I want to be approached. Come to me. And all the layers outside said, come to me, but stay back. I want you to come to me, 
but you need to keep your distance because my holiness is dangerous to you. You're not holy, I am. And if you get too close, you're going to taste it because you're like dry kindling in the presence of a raging fire. I want you to draw near, but I need to protect you from my presence because you are not holy. You must approach me with sacrifice. You must approach me with propitiation. Not that his vanity needs to be solved, not that, not that his, but, but a recognition that there is a sin debt, that there is a justice issue between man and God. That God, the creator of all things, is the measure of all that is just, and we have committed cosmic treason against him. And in doing so, have actually changed our very nature. We are unrighteous. We are unholy. We are not fit to come into the presence of God. That lid is called the mercy seat. Because when Aaron and then later the high priests would sprinkle the blood on it, that blood would go between the presence of God and the broken commandments. That blood would go between the glory of God, the, the, the manifestation of His holy presence, and our sin. And in doing so, it created peace. Now, here's the problem. There was no animal that was fit to actually remove the guilt of our sin. And, and so, these sacrifices had to be made daily all through the year. Every single year, the high priest had to go back and do this again. And he had to first make sacrifices for himself and then for for the entire nation because there was no animal that was fit to actually be a propitiatory sacrifice on behalf of us. We were created in the very image of God. We were the vice regents of God, the stewards of all creation created in his very image. And we committed cosmic treason. No animal could step into that place of glory. No animal could step into that place of shame. That required a fit substitute. That required somebody who was in fact one of us. That needed somebody who was the perfect Lamb of God. The cross is the true and better mercy seat. It is the place where God's holy presence meets mankind's sin and perfect propitiation is satisfied. The blood of Christ. The cross is the place where our sin and God's holiness meet. That's why this verse has that weird wording. Um, whom, that is Jesus, God put forward. So God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does that mean that he put him forward? He made it public. The mercy seat used to be hidden away in the most secret chamber of God's temple. And only one person could see it, and then only once a year. Jesus was put forward on cavalry, Calvary, um, the place of the skull, a hill right outside of the city. And, and in having Jesus publicly crucified, God was putting his son forward, 
putting him on display, turning on a spotlight and saying, look, look, look and see what your propitiation has cost. Look. Instead of being hidden away in the Holy of Holies, it was displayed on the hill of the skull. He was the perfect high priest. He didn't need to come with sacrifices for himself because he had fully obeyed and earned the blessing of the law. He did not need to first offer sacrifices for himself because he had, had never tried to ungod God and he never used his power in injustice toward man. He honored every human created in the image of God and always honored the God who created humanity. He was perfect. He was man as man was created to be. He was the perfect high priest. And when he went to the cross, that meant he didn't need to sacrifice for himself. He could be the perfect sacrifice for others. He was the perfect lamb of God the perfect substitute, the one who could die the death we deserve to die. He was the last Adam who could bear the consequence of the rebellion of the first Adam. He could take the weight of rebellion of the entire human race in his body on the tree. He was the perfect high priest. He was the perfect sacrifice. And he became the perfect propitiation on our behalf. God put him forward. That we might be simultaneously horrified and comforted. Because on the cross... Christ is the visible representation of the weight of our sin. He shows us the price that had to be paid. He is also the overwhelming demonstration of love. When we look at the cross, we see that not only were we that bad, that Christ had to die, we were that loved. That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. God put him forward as a propitiation in his blood. The cost of our sin was death, eternal separation from God. And only God made man could satisfy that debt. In a great mystery that we will never fully understand, he was immersed in our rebellion so that we could be cleansed, forgiven, and made whole. And I want to make it clear that it was God himself who stepped into that judgment. There are those who hate the doctrine of propitiation because they hate the idea of blood and of blood sacrifice. There are those that would even accuse 
teachers like me of, of teaching divine child abuse, that somehow God the Father was a capricious and vengeful father who abused his son so that his own pride might be vindicated. And of course, that is a complete misunderstanding, not only of the beautiful doctrine of propitiation, but of the very nature of God. Because there is nothing that God does that God himself is not holistically involved in. When Jesus died on the cross, it was God. Bearing the weight of our sin and stepping in to the consequences of our rebellion. Jesus, as the second person of the Godhead, the the eternal Son. Three persons, one God. Three who's one what. It was God himself stepping into that judgment. God absorbing the penalty of our sin God, the just and holy God, being covered with the weight of our cosmic treason against His just and holy nature. That He might remain just even as He justifies the ungodly. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the cry of anguish. As God himself became the propitiation for our sins, the God who was the very measure of holiness suffered the full measure of justice that was due to us. God poured out his wrath, but not on us. He absorbed it in himself, in love, to offer himself as the ransom price we needed. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, the grace of our salvation is free to us. But it was not free to God. There was a terrible price that had to be paid. We are justified through the redemption price Jesus paid by becoming our propitiation. God put him forward. God put him on display, covered in our shame, paying the price of our guilt to announce to the world that they too could be justified by grace as a gift by simply trusting In that finished work, it was a gift to be received, but a gift that came at a terrible price. Let me close with a quote from uh, Ian Campbell um, that I think just profoundly sums this up. He says, the cross did not turn God's anger into love. The love and anger of God reside in the same heart. But in love, he provided a substitute upon whom his wrath was poured so that love and not anger might reach a guilty world. This is simply the New Testament doctrine of propitiation. Christ was made like his brothers in order that he might be a faithful high priest to make propitiation for our sins. God is angry with him 
at Calvary. And like the lightning conductor that takes the full force of a lightning strike to save the church steeple, he is struck that I might be comforted. He is struck that I might be comforted. This morning I have no uh, practical applications for you. My challenge to you is, look, God has put Christ forward as a propitiation in His blood. Look, and let that humble your pride, and let that horrify your senses, and let it comfort your fear, and let it invite you in love. I'm going to close this in word of prayer. We'll share communion in a moment. Father, we thank you for the incredible gift of your grace. We thank you. Lord, on my best day, when I am at my most humble and most aware of the beauty of what you've done, I am completely inadequate to fully esteem the worth of this gift. Lord, you knew, even as you paid this price, that we would spend all of eternity wondering at this love, at this justice, at this price. You didn't do it because we would give you a gift in return. You did it because you were driven to give us the gift of yourself because you are love. And because you are love, you stepped in to the justice we deserved, that we might be set free into the blessing. Lord, I pray that you would um, open our eyes. Lord, we are weak of mind and uh, weak of heart. Spirit, would you increase our capacity to both esteem this gift and respond to its love? You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.